Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? tonight can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Dance by the light of the moon. What'd you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, no. tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we watched the fourth movie in the 1946 Awards, the seasonally inappropriate but nevertheless excellent It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> Yeah, I actually think it's a better movie when you don't watch it at Christmas, which I will get into. I think that some stuff about it really plays different, certainly, when you're not watching it at Christmas. And it feels like there's more there to dig into that I think a lot of the time I certainly have just waved away as, well, that's unimportant. It's not the Christmas be thankful stuff. But there's a lot here. There's a lot in this movie. I mean, I've never watched it at Christmas, so I think I began the movie with the mindset of, this is a Christmas movie. And because it is not Christmas immediately in the film, about one and a half minutes in, I completely forgot that and stopped watching it with that lens. I think it's great. I think you mentioned last week at the end of the podcast that it has possibly a problematic politics. <laughs> Yeah. There is a little bit of that, but I think that overall its politics are pretty good. I think that's true. I think there are some details of the populist stuff that he argues about that if you take to its logical conclusion can go to some kind of weird places. But I mean, he's better than fucking Mr. Potter, who's a cartoonishly evil capitalist. It's interesting because seeing Lionel Barrymore in this position as the villain, whereas he was kind of the anti-hero, I guess, of you can't take it with you, makes me feel like Capra's politics are a little confused. <laughs> because... There is not a whole lot of difference between Mr. Potter and whoever the guy is in You Can't Take It With You, who's like, well, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, so everybody else should too, and I'm not paying taxes. <laughs> to, to be fair, Mr. Potter kind of goes whole hog into just like, and why shouldn't we kill orphans? They're in the way of my car. <laughs> yes, that's definitely true. But I feel like Grandpa Vanderhoff is not that many steps from that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. He's like, I don't give a shit if the whole neighborhood goes to hell because I'm getting rid of my house. And then everyone has to convince him that actually you should care about other people. And Mr. Potter apparently never comes to care about other people as far as we know. <laughs> No, and like famously, that's one of the weird things about the ending to It's a Wonderful Life is, so Mr. Potter just still runs the town, huh? <laughs> Seems like it might have been helpful for Clarence to mention that Mr. Potter committed a crime and you could go over to his place and find the lost money and probably put him in jail. Yeah? <laughs> I, I mean, I like to think that maybe after George decides not to kill himself and everybody has a Christmas party, which was planned... 
that the next day maybe they uh they make that move but i mean maybe george still doesn't know yeah i think he i mean let's go through the plot of this film for anyone else who has not ever caught it's a wonderful life or decided to flip past it every single christmas for their life which don't next year just don't yeah yes but also, I kind of can't blame you because this movie is structured super weirdly. And as a kid, I always kind of had trouble getting into it because the first half of it is just this dude's life story. And angels are like, it is very important for you to know what he did with this druggist when he was nine. And I'm like, can we get to the learning lessons part? Because I am nine. <laughs> and none of this is really resonating with me. It works. I really like it. It's just a weird structure because it literally starts with angels out in space going like, hey, it's a really bad day for George Bailey. He is thinking about committing suicide. A lot of people are praying for him, which I had forgotten about the start of this movie. The reason the angels notice him is everybody in town is praying for George Bailey. Right. The angels bring in Clarence Oddbody, a second-class angel who has not yet gotten his wings, and tell him George Bailey's whole life story, beginning with him saving his brother from drowning as a 12-year-old, and then keeping the distraught town druggist from accidentally poisoning somebody because he was so freaked out to learn that his own son had died. In the war. It's 1919, I think, when the movie starts. I think he dies of the flu epidemic. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's the flu. But he gets a cable. So I'm like, yeah, it must have been the war. Right. Who sent a telegram to be like, your son died of the flu? Man, if like... I don't like regular awkward conversations. That's fair. Yeah. That's <laughs> I guess the telegram at the point where phones were pretty standard just was the text message. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I don't want to deal with seeing this person face to face or even talking to them. I know I'll send a telegram. Yeah. Anyway. We then skip ahead to the incredibly charming courtship between George and Mary Hatch who is played by Donna Reed in the role that fucking sets her up for life as the perfect housewife. Almost so much that when she is a teenager, when she is 18, I'm like, I don't buy this at all. Yeah. And then as soon as they're married and she settles into having kids, I go, okay, okay, okay. I see this. Yeah. So George is sort of this young, idealistic, kind of cocky guy who's like going to get out of this one horse town. But then his dad dies right as he's about to go off to college. And the only way to save his dad's business, which is this town building and loan that's the only major business in town that isn't controlled by Mr. Potter, a cartoonishly evil businessman, who's great in every scene. But every time you see him, he's like, we need to close this place down. There's no profit in keeping people off the streets. Yes, that, yes. <laughs> it's great. And George Bailey understandably hates this piece of shit and is like, hey, I'm going to kind of destroy my whole life plan just to spite this guy and stick around in town. It's a little more complicated than that. People kind of push him into it. But clearly he is like, well, this is the right thing to do. And also, fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like it's more that he feels a genuine 
sense of responsibility to his family and to his hometown. And to top it off, that guy sucks. So that's like the cherry on top rather than like that's the foundation for why he stays. Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, we should mention right now that no one on Earth but Jimmy Stewart could play this part, right? Literally no one. It's the reason no one's tried to remake It's a Wonderful Life, even though there's got to be just barrels of fucking money in it, is because you just cannot cast another George Bailey. The closest we've got is George Clooney, and George Clooney always knows he looks like George Clooney. Like, he has to be playing a guy that knows he looks like George Clooney, so he can't fucking do it. Um, Also, I don't think George Clooney can break down like Jimmy Stewart can. That's fair. If George Clooney did the second into third act turn where he screams at his family, you just couldn't come back. No, I'd be afraid for them instead of worried about him. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much of that. Like, the courtship with Mary also has some shit where you're like, this shouldn't work. But it does because it's Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. And also, every single speech he gives about coming together is like, this is the most cliched, boring, why am I crying? (laughs) Why am I openly weeping right now? Yeah, see, I feel like George Clooney could pull off some of the stuff that's like, you know, fuck bankers. (laughs) Right. But I don't think he could pull off any of the more intimate parts of this film, which is what makes it work. Anyway. Yeah. Where were we? George takes over the building and loan, sticks around for four years so his brother can go to college. His brother comes back with a new wife and that new wife is like, hey, don't worry, we're going to stick around in town so that you can go off to college and live your life. But my dad has offered your brother this super great job. But he's not going to take it because he knows he's supposed to take over the building and loan now. And George Bailey's like, well, fuck, I've got to be a good guy again. (laughs) And continues working at the building and loan and kind of figures out he's going to live his life here. And his mom is like, hey, you know how literally actually Donna Reed has been begging to marry you for like 15 years? Maybe go over to her house. I think it's been like five, but yeah. (laughs) No, because she's also the little girl that leans. Oh, yeah, that whispers in his ear because he goes deaf in one ear after he saves his brother from drowning. Yeah. And she whispers in his ear that she loves him and is going to marry him and that she'll love him as long as she lives. Yeah, God, I'm trying not to mention absolutely everything. I'm like trying to get through this plot, but everything I skip is like that first date at the dance is so fucking great. The bit where they open up the floor because there's a pool underneath and they want to prank George Bailey. But then instead of pranking him, everybody actually thinks it's kind of super cool and great when he falls into the pool. And then even the two guys that tried to prank him just go along with it and jump in the pool too. Yeah, again, why no one but Jimmy Stewart could play this role. <laughs> For sure. Everything I'm saying is like, like, what the hell? This movie must suck. Anyway, he and Donna Reed have this very charming scene where he won't admit he has come over to see her. And she gets into an increasingly bad mood about it, really understandably. And then her kind of boyfriend calls. Yeah. Who is a friend of theirs from school. And they both end up on the phone with her kind of boyfriend. And it's very awkward and funny. And what is the friend's name? Sam. Sam Wainwright. Yes. Who recommends to 
George Bailey that he invests everything that he has in plastics. And George is like, I am 100% not going to do that. (laughs) Uh, And absolutely should have. Mm -hmm. It turns out later. But yeah, they end up getting married. (laughs) Because their faces are so close together, George kind of has this breakdown where he's like, I'm not going to keep living in this shit town. I'm not going to invest in plastics. I'm not going to get married and have two kids with you in a house in this town where we live together happily for our whole lives. And then like starts making out. (laughs) (laughs) Then we time skip ahead to Black Black. Friday? What is it? The Tuesday? The, whatever. We the skip stock ahead market to... crash of 1929. <laughs> yeah. Whichever day that was. All the catchphrases people know from this movie are from Act 3, but I feel like this is the scene everybody knows. Is this scene where there's a run on the building and loan, and he is about to go off on his honeymoon with Donna Reed, and sees the people gathered outside the building and loan. And for reasons that remain unclear to me to this day, Mr. Potter calls and goes, if you close for business on this day, I will make sure you never open again. And I'm not entirely certain what the legality of that is, but those are the stakes. There's a lot of extrapolation that one has to do to understand what Mr. Potter is capable of. And you know what? I think that actually works. I mean, first of all, he's a board member of the building and loan, right? Which is wild. But I'm not really sure how, as a board member, he would be able to do that. But then who else really is on the board? It's his uncle who is a little bit weird (laughs) and has a pet crow that's always around. And I guess George. So he could probably pull it off in some way. And then a bunch of guys that seem to just agree with the last thing they heard. Yeah. Which sounds like a bank board to me. <laughs> yeah. Because they say that they'll only keep it open if George will run it, and then we never see the board again. Yeah. There is this great scene where essentially Jimmy Stewart explains the point of the building and loan, which is this money is a huge communal pot of loans Everyone has put their money in so that they can get money back out to buy homes, which are too expensive for any of them individually. And so the money isn't here is essentially his point. So he asks, how much money is it going to take to tide you over until the banks reopen in a couple of days? And ends up using up all of the money he was going to spend on his honeymoon, giving people the cash to tide them over so that the building and loan doesn't go out of business. And also single-handedly diffusing the panicked run on banks. It's like if everybody had just explained this to people, the stock market crash would not have happened. I mean, to be fair, the first fired side chat essentially was this. Was essentially FDR. Yeah, but by that point, there was already a depression. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's why he was elected. (laughs) Right. But I think it is actually fair to say if somebody had just sat down and explained how it worked, it actually would have not gone nearly as badly as it did. That's probably true. Yeah. God, that scene's great. One, there's so much Frank Capra detail in here. Like, even after he explains this, the first guy's still an asshole. The first guy still completely closes out his account and wants all of his money. 
And then the next guy's actually pretty nice and is like 20 bucks. And then there's sort of this standard set of like, well, 20 bucks will get me to when the bank opens. And then this lady walks up and goes, can I have 1750? And he just kisses her on the face. And it's fantastic. <laughs> just God, Jimmy Stewart in this movie. But then we skip ahead in time again. I'm skipping over the great little low-rent honeymoon yeah, they make. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't want to spoil everything for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we get to the World War II thing. Because of George's deaf ear that he got saving his kid brother, he is ineligible. So he is organizing rubber drives and like just organizing home front shit. But his brother goes over and is like the best pilot in the history of the world, apparently. Saves a troop transport, does all this great stuff, gets a medal from the president when we get to present day, which is Christmas Eve 1945. This is an hour plus into the movie. That is why, as a kid, I was like, what is this movie? I don't like it. And not even I don't like it, but let's get to the part where the angel teaches him lessons, which actually, I, as an adult, kind of like the least of the whole movie. But that's fine. Because Uncle Billy, his charmingly befuddled and forgetful uncle who works at the building and loan, goes to the bank to deposit 8000 bucks from the building and loan and dunks on Mr. Potter so hard he accidentally gives all of the money to Mr. Potter because he's just so into dunking on the dude that when he's like tapping him in the chest, he taps him in the chest with all of the money that he's wrapped up in a newspaper and then like tucks it into his shirt as a final dunk and walks off and then is like, oh shit, where's my money? <laughs> well, and the newspaper, the headline is about Harry winning this medal and meeting with the president. So it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, I guess he's dunking on him, but mostly he's just bragging. Yeah, it's specifically that he frames it as you just can't keep a good Bailey man down, can you? You've tried. You've tried to keep a Bailey down and you can't do it, huh? It is great because everything in this movie is great. But then he figures out he doesn't have the cash and can't figure out where he put it because he's super forgetful. But George figures out nobody's going to believe a befuddled old man just lost $8,000. There's going to be a huge scandal about it, and probably he will go to jail. Especially because there's a bank examiner who has mysteriously been sent over to investigate their books on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Wonder who did that. <laughs> he goes over to see Mr. Potter about it, and instead of going like, I have the money, Mr. Potter goes like, hey... Where are you going to get that money? Do you have a life insurance policy or anything? Wow, that life insurance policy is worth more than the amount of money you lost. You should probably kill yourself because you're worth more dead than alive. It is not quite that explicit, but damn, it's close. Why does Mr. Potter just want George Bailey to die? Yeah, I like. I guess because then he gets the building and loan. I think it's because he gets the building and loan, but also at one point in Act One, George Bailey says that Mr. Potter just inherently hates anything he can't have. I think it's that he can't have George Bailey, and not like in a sexual way. Like there's a scene where he's like, I want to hire you. And <laughs> absolutely great moment of performance by Jimmy Stewart that, again, should not work. He shakes hands with Mr. Potter and goes like, I'll think about it. 
and then is so disgusted by having shaken the dude's hand that he goes, you know what? I don't need to think about it. I'm never going to work for you. You suck. And leaves. Even though the amount that he offers him a year translates to $400,000 a year. Yeah. On a three-year contract. And that's his starting salary. Like, it's specified that that's what you were going to start you out at. Anyway, George goes home and in a scene that is excruciating, but in the way the movie intends it to be, he lashes out at basically his entire family because he is under so much stress about this lost money and freaks out that he has really freaked out his whole family because he screamed at all of them and runs off and goes drinking and just like tries to figure out what to do and eventually wanders over to a bridge that he is going to jump off and kill himself. Um, But then an angel jumps off and tries to kill himself instead. (laughs) Poor planning that perhaps explains why Clarence is an angel second class, but works out for him. Well, he knew that he would jump in and save him. Yeah. Because he has watched the whole of his life and knows that this is a guy who is the type of person who will just jump in and save you. (laughs) And he does. And then they have this conversation where Clarence is extremely upfront about being a supernatural being sent by God to protect George Bailey. And George Bailey is like, this is the worst night of my life and it's only getting worse. (laughs) Right. Like what is wrong with you? Why are you being (laughs) such a weirdo? And why are you focused on me? Eventually, the conversation gets around to George wishing he was never born, and Clarence grants his wish and gets as close as you can get to 1945's post-apocalyptic cyberpunk future, where everything has gone horribly wrong. Except, and this is the one place where I find this movie's politics to be a little bit uh, problematic, it's extremely nimby. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yes, it is good that there's a lot of people who have homes in the actual George Bailey exists future slash present. But this idea that if Main Street has like theaters and strip clubs and nightclubs and jazz clubs, that that's just shorthand for everything is fucking terrible. (laughs) And like kind of, I don't know how intentional this is, but kind of the only way that the movie seems to be able to symbolize that everything is like a lower class of of business now is like more people of color work there. It's not great. Oh, I didn't pick up on that at all because I was too busy with the girls, girls, girls on everything (laughs) being the measure of everything going to shit. Bedford Falls is now Pottersville and Pottersville is... Probably the weakest part of the movie, just in terms of, like, realizing this terrible world without George Bailey. Whenever you're talking to a person in Pottersville, it works pretty well. The druggist went to jail because he did succeed in accidentally killing a child, which I don't think is... Success is maybe the wrong word, but that did happen. He was not stopped from killing a child, yeah. George's mother has no children because George wasn't around to save his brother. His brother is dead, and therefore an entire platoon of men that his brother saved. A troop transport is all dead now, too. And in what seems like it probably shouldn't be the single last thing he finds that drives him over the edge... 
Mary's a spinster librarian and is honestly looking pretty hot. And honestly looks hotter. Yeah. If there is one thing that has really changed in, and I would say like the last 20 years, to be honest, it is that girls in glasses can also be hot now. <laughs> it is wild how much that is the only signifier this movie feels like it needs to do for her life is ruined. <laughs> like <laughs> Everything is shit. She wears glasses and pulls her hair back and wears a cute little hat. To be clear, the rising action here is small business owners don't own their businesses anymore. Mr. Potter owns everything. Everyone's kind of a miserable jerk who just doesn't believe in community or charity because they've been so beaten down by capitalism. Tons of people are literally dead because George Bailey was not there to save their life. And Mary wears glasses. <laughs> and like, it's in that order. A lot of people are homeless. I mean, maybe it's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. It, right. But that's the thing, is that in practice, that's the thing where George Bailey, who the whole time has been like, you've hypnotized me. You're some sort of evil magician, Clarence. And then he sees his wife in glasses and he's like, I can't take it anymore. Clarence, take me back to the real world. I'll be grateful now. I want to live. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> Jimmy Stewart sells it. It's great, but like it is also really wild. Once he is back in reality, he goes back home and is happy in what I think is both a great thing and kind of a strange thing. He doesn't feel like his life is going to be improved in any way. He is just happy to take the lumps of life. He is happy to be grateful for what he has and goes back home. He thinks he's going to jail. Yeah, literally going, I'm so happy, take me to jail. But then it turns out that in what as an adult is really very clearly set up earlier in the film the whole town is gonna come together and give him this money. It's very clearly set up in this way that when he is having his dark night of the soul before he goes to jump off the bridge, everybody's like, hey, George, are you okay? Hey, George, is there like anything I can do for you? <laughs> hey, George, you're my best friend in the entire world. And without even hearing the other guy's story, anybody who says anything bad about you, fuck them. <laughs> and like, so... When he comes back to the present at the end, everyone in town has come together and has raised more than enough money to make up for the $8,000. His friend Sam, who got rich from plastics, offers to wire him up to three times the amount of money that was lost, in addition to all of the money the town has. It is great. It plays, too. The way that it happens, and I think this is what makes this movie so fucking devastating, is you've gone through this really horrible thing, and then he comes back and he's like, it's fine, I'm just gonna go to jail if that's what it takes because life is worth living, whatever. But he goes home and he's absolutely manic. Which, understandably. And the bank people and police are there to arrest him, and he's so effusively affectionate to his children. <laughs> he doesn't even say, like, give me a second, I need to go and hug my kids. He's just like, oh my god, I love you, little kid A to little kid B through D. <laughs> and is on his knees, hugging all of them really voraciously. Then the wife comes home. Then everyone starts flooding in and dumping baskets full of money on the table. Then you get the news about Sam 
then the bank people and the cops start chipping in. Yeah. It's one thing after another, and I'm just sobbing <laughs> as each thing compiles. <laughs> yeah. Then the brother comes in and is like, I basically commandeered a plane because I heard my brother was in trouble. Right, like I left the Presidential Medal of Honor ceremony <laughs> because it was Christmas Eve and my brother was in trouble and I wanted to make sure that I was there with him. Yeah. Then he finds the book that Clarence was reading at the beginning of the movie, which was a copy of Tom Sawyer, that he has written a nice little thing in. It's just... It's just so much. <laughs> yeah. We've talked a ton about Jimmy Stewart, but like nobody could direct that last scene but Frank Capra. Oh, yeah. It is too much, objectively. But it does not play as too much. It plays as I am openly weeping right now. I mean, it plays as too much in the right way. Yeah. It's like, please, Capra, don't hurt him. <laughs> Instead of, this is ridiculous. Yeah. It's, oh my god, people are so good! <laughs> there is a moment in that last scene where a cop walks through the crowd enough to have a clear line of sight to George Bailey and literally tears up the warrant for his arrest right in front of him. I was watching this with Nikki and I was like, it is a credit to this film that I do not laugh at that. Right. Because that is absurd, but it works. There is also a component to this where if you have, for instance, watched several Frank Capra films over the last couple of years, <laughs> this feels both like Capra's penance for the end of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, because you have this dumping of a bunch of stuff onto a table while Jimmy Stewart has a breakdown, except this time it's good. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry I did that to you at the end of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. What if this is just my do-over? Instead of telegrams saying how terrible Jefferson Smith is, what if it's all money to help George Bailey? <laughs> and everybody in this town has been in another Frank Capra movie, so it feels like I know them. Yeah. Like, they're my neighbors at this point. <laughs> a few years ago, we were having Christmas at my wife's family's house. And my mother-in-law was like, we're putting on It's a Wonderful Life. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, this is the first time I've really watched It's a Wonderful Life, like, start to finish in a few years. That seems fine. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, this movie is really quite good. I'd kind of forgotten. But this is the first time it has really played for me as well as it has because one like you say it feels like this weird capstone to all the Capra movies we've watched and two I think when you watch it at Christmas it plays much more as a movie about being grateful for what you have that like the lesson of Christmas is God has given you such bounty shut the fuck up <laughs> and when you don't watch it at Christmas, all of the solutions are earthly, right? Like, it actually works really well that God didn't really give George Bailey anything except this vision of how the world would be a worse place without him. Yeah, basically just said, don't kill yourself, and that's the gift. Right. But not because things are going to work out. Yeah. Obviously, this movie is about being grateful for what you have, but when you're not in Christmas, there is this feeling of also persevere, because what you have given to the community will come back to you. 
that feels less like God gave him that stuff and more like literally the town gave him that stuff and they did it because of what he has done. Obviously, that is literally true. That is the literal last scene of this film. But during the holidays, I think there is a little bit more of a, like, magic does it. God does it. He is given this bounty by the grace of God. No, everyone in this town fucking loves him because he sacrificed so much for this town. I don't know. It really worked for me. Yeah, I mean, again, I've never watched it at Christmas, so I don't really have that experience for me i think it's not just like what you give out will come back to you but that for every asshole mr potter most of humanity is actually really genuinely fucking good and likes people and wants to make sure that they're okay i think that also kind of hits different post pandemic or or during pandemic because that's where we are right now still yeah because there was so much mutual aid that just popped up immediately when this started that for years never would get off the ground and then it was like oh okay we actually just have to do this otherwise we're all gonna fucking die yeah (laughs) and people who have more and who can contribute anything should and people who need it should take it shamelessly and with gratitude but they shouldn't be embarrassed by it there should be a joy there And I think that's really what destroys me is George Bailey's level of joy in accepting charity. Because you don't see that. I think that's true. And I think it's also when you watch this as a Christmas film, I think of it as having sort of these two distinct phases. The George Bailey life story portion And then the being grateful for your life Christmas portion. That you need George Bailey's backstory for that to make sense, but there's sort of these two distinct phases. And I think how well integrated those two actually are was my big takeaway from this view. That, oh, in a way, the bank run scene is the lesson George Bailey has to learn cosmically, is what he is saying specifically about the building and loan in that scene. No, it's not that what you put in has gone away. It's that it is everywhere now. It is in everybody's home. Yeah. I have thought of that as, oh, that's a really great Jimmy Stewart performance scene. And then there's this really charming, happy ending at the end. And those two things are pretty distinct from each other. Instead of, oh, it's all of a piece. It is all trying to make this one point about communal aid and sticking together and working together and how important it is to... Not go it alone, because if you do, you might win, but you'll become fucking Mr. Potter. Right, and the druggist will accidentally poison a kid and then end up in jail and end up homeless and panhandling and everyone will be a total asshole about it instead of saying, wow, what a tragic thing that this guy's kid died and he fucked up and then murdered another child. (laughs) Yeah, and and I cannot stress this enough, your wife will wear glasses. I, that. (laughs) The worst of all possible worlds, yes. Yes. Yeah, just what a horror show. Yeah, this movie is really phenomenal, and I don't even know that I want to, I mean, we've talked a lot about it already. I I don't even know that I want to talk about it any more than we have, because I feel like everyone should watch this film, and I feel like a lot of people haven't. 
because they presume that it is a cheesy Christmas movie. <laughs> I think there's that. And I also really want to say, I think a lot of people hearing us say, watch this movie will go, okay, when it comes on TBS this December, I'll watch it. No, watch it right now. <laughs> you should watch it right now. It hits different. Nikki was saying this last night. And the more I think about it, the more it really is true for me is this movie hits different when you don't watch it as a Christmas movie. It It is a Christmas movie. I get that. Like, it certainly more than Die Hard. I mean, about as much as Die Hard, I would say. Because it takes place, <laughs> yeah. the whole mess takes place on Christmas Eve, but it could have taken place on April 30th. That is true, but also Die Hard does not have a literal angel in it. That, that's fair. <laughs> it just has Alan Rickman, which is the next best thing. Aww. <laughs> I miss him. Yeah, but the general point is that it it is in a lot of ways a Christmas movie, but it is, I think, interesting to watch this movie without that lens or without that being the overriding sense of the film, because there's a lot here that isn't a Christmas movie that's really good. And so you should watch it just as soon as you hear this episode. Um, And t- 10, 10 out of 10? 9 out of 10? 10. 10, 10, yeah. 10. Yeah, I kind of want to take points away for some of the weird political stuff about Pottersville, but I don't have the heart to do it. The more than the sum of its parts stuff about this movie, I think more than makes up for that. And yeah, 10 out of 10. I mean, here's the thing. Pottersville actually is a shitty place. It's just not a shitty place because there's, you know, strip clubs on Main Street. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's some weird politics there and some weird world building I don't necessarily love that I do want to say, hey, that does drag this movie down a little, but the gestalt of the movie carries you through it. It doesn't derail the film. You just kind of go like, well, that's weird a couple of times in Pottersville. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Watch this movie. I think the last thing I want to say before we go on to next week is this movie's reputation is that it kind of needed to find itself on TV. It was not actually a really beloved film when it came out. It does not win. But watching it every year in the context of it being this sort of family ritual It found itself, whereas the Academy kind of found it cheesy at the time. Um, The Academy was wrong. Not only was the Academy wrong, but it snubbed its wonderful life for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Film Editing for the best years of our lives, which sucks. Yeah. (laughs) And particularly sucks Compared to this film. Yeah. I mean, I do think this movie kind of does more in about two minutes of a montage about World War II than the first hour of Best Years of Our Lives does. I don't want to shit on that movie too much because I feel like it is trying to do interesting things. And I think that from a film historical perspective, if you're not screen test of time watching that movie... If you're watching it with the ability to kind of spot at some points for dealing with the Hays Code and coming out when it comes out, I think there's some interesting stuff to it. But God, it's a long, boring watch that takes forever to get to the point. And fucking It's a Wonderful Life moves. Man, does this movie move. Well, and also, 
imagine giving best actor to Friedrich March, who was given nothing to do in the best years of our lives, over Jimmy Stewart in this movie. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. That is insane. Like, it is utterly nuts. That... Or best editing? Yeah, yeah. No. That is one of those awards that I feel like famously the Academy is like, what's editing? <laughs> votes on that it can't be film editors i feel like film editing is like basically always given to either the shortest movie or the longest movie because that's about as much as the academy understands about film editing is like oh i thought about how this film had several shots that were put in an order by someone i mean i get it i know that the academy is largely made up of people who don't understand what editing is at all and actors are voting and you know why, how would they even know? But I'm surprised that they're allowed to vote in this. I feel like you shouldn't be allowed to vote for film editing unless you're an editor. Or like the vote weighs more. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're a professional editor? Okay, that's five votes for this. Oh, you're an actor? That's one vote for this. We should probably make super sure that that isn't how it works before we go off too hard. But yeah, I think the Academy just, just yeah, I think it's just like no matter what you're in the Academy for, you get to vote for everything, which is kind of wild. I think you do. But we should talk about uh, next week's movie that has, I don't know, we've we've been split on this opinion a lot lately, but... Uh, I think a dangerously good poster. I'm worried about how good this poster is. Yeah, it's really good. So next week we're watching The Razor's Edge. And uh, the poster is just like, if you wanted the greatest noir poster of all time that is not Casablanca's, <laughs> it would be this. Yeah. And it has Tyrone Power and Gene Tierney, who are both wildly famous movie stars neither of whom has been in a movie we liked yet, so... <laughs> yeah, I'm a little worried about it. Uh, but let's see, because... It might be great. It could be. Yeah. And Until then, this was a movie, though. Yeah, this was a movie. This was a damn good movie. And you should watch it. Yep. Right now. Agreed. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings... Angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Atta boy, Clarence.